Churchpreneurs Podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith-related. Churchpreneurs' vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness in fulfilling the Great Commission in our generation. It's possible, folks. Churchpreneurs hopes to embolden you in your personal walk with Christ, your theological understanding, and maybe, hopefully, to draw you closer to Jesus Christ. Hey, all you churchpreneurs out there, you may be aware that uh, Bethel Church in California has put out a uh, series uh, called Rediscovering Bethel. It's a six-episode podcast series, and they tried to respond to critique in that series of their movement in the last uh, last year. And so uh, I thought I'd take a, a few a few episodes here and respond to that series. Now, in this series, I won't show any of that video, so I'll put the links to those full episodes in the description. And I'll just respond to what they said uh, in those series because of copyright uh, information. Uh, they will probably uh, put uh, copyright strikes on my account if I happen to show those videos. So go have a look at those videos for yourself. I'll put the link for this one in the description. They had a six series uh, video uh, and uh, three of them, I believe, Bill Johnson was in with Dan Farrelly. And uh, the other three were uh, interviewed, Dan Fairley interviewed Chris Vallotton, their prophet. So I'll just jump right in here. I want to respond to what they said in those videos. Um, I took detailed, detailed notes on what they said. And my response to that, I was actually doing it as a project for someone else uh, that might come out. You might uh, see that somewhere else or my help, hopefully, um, to uh, their, to what they said in those videos. So um, in episode number one of Rediscovering Bethel, they talked about Jesus. Uh, I think the title was Jesus, God's Sovereignty, and Bible Translations. So let's jump right in. At the 14-minute mark, so Dan Farrelly, again, is interviewing Bill Johnson in this first episode. Uh, Dan Farrelly, at the 14-minute mark, again, if you haven't watched that Go watch those series. Maybe you can watch it on double speed. They are very long. They're, uh, one of them is an hour, and I think the shortest one is like an hour and 45. Other ones are about two hours long, so they're very long. You can also watch them in maybe short segments. They have, they've split all those episodes up into short segments. But without further ado, let me just jump right in. Um, at the 14-minute mark of the first episode, Dan Fairley talks about cults. Um, and, and cults demand perfect uniformity, he says. And then he goes on to talk about how we've split and how the church over the years has had a history of disunity. Uh, this is a mantra by Bethel, um, unity, unity, unity. Disunity is not what God wants. And Bethel expresses a perfect unity like the time when they left uh, the Assemblies of God denomination in 2006, so uh, they don't actually hold to their own mantra. They have actually uh, separated from the Assemblies of God denomination in 2006 after the Assemblies of God created a, uh, a paper that uh, condemned a lot of their major theological positions. Um, so fairly at the 14-minute mark seems to condemn disunity, um, leaving when we disagree or separating 
when we uh, disagree. Uh, they did the exact same thing, however, in 2006. So they don't even actually hold to their own mantra. Um, they are very tribal. Um, they hold to their own tribes. Uh, the New Apostolic Reformation is a tribe that they hold to, and uh, they don't associate with anyone else who might not be in that tribe. Uh, so the Assemblies of God uh, wrote a position paper condemning most of their theological positions in 2000, uh, in early, right before they separated. So uh, are they in danger of disunity themselves? Um, no, I, I think the picture here is clear that they are the ones who have perfect theology and everyone else is living in disunity uh, and needs to correct themselves toward their perspective and their theological bend. Dan Fairley then asks Bill what he generally thinks uh, about theology and then goes in to describe the Pope and how Catholics believe that he speaks for Christ. Uh, these guys, first of all, they have no concept or no understanding of theology. Catholics believe that not only does the Pope speak for Christ, he is the representative or the vicar of Christ on this earth. Uh, meaning that he is the embodiment of Jesus Christ on this earth, and thus he speaks for God perfectly, and what he says is as if God was saying it. That's what the vicar of Christ means. These were the Reformation issues years and years ago. Uh, the Catholic Church believes that 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 the vicar that that the Pope is the vicar of Christ, and he can speak for Christ. He speaks, and what he says holds. Uh, revelatory uh, emphasis. Um, but what the reform reformers said was sola scriptura, that the scriptures alone are where God speaks, not through the popes. So these guys, first of all, they don't understand Catholic theology, and they maybe don't even really understand Protestant theology, what the Reformation was all about and why the reformers protested against the Catholic Church. Uh, Bill then moves on to answer and describe what he thinks of theology. He says, theology is mainly about studying what changes me. And here, uh, there's, a, there's a fine line, and I want to point out what the, what the problem is here. He's got it completely wrong. Uh, theology is about God and describing him properly, explaining him properly, uh, preaching him properly. Theology is the study of the Most High God and who he is, what he's done, his nature and character, and how men ought to worship him, and most importantly, how they are made right with him through Jesus Christ. That's what theology is. And, and Bill says, theology, then he goes on to say, at a, a little bit before the 17-minute mark, Bill Johnson goes on to say, theology has to change me. Uh, this could be tenuous because if theology doesn't change me, then it's not theology. Or if theology doesn't change me, then it's not true. Or if theology doesn't change me, then it's not experiential. If theology doesn't change me, then I don't believe it. But that can't be. Bill at the 17-minute mark to the 18-minute mark says, if it doesn't change me, then I need to take a look, another look at what I have read, end quote. So the standard of theology is if it changes me, not if it's objectively true. The truth about God and his word, who he describes himself to be, is objectively true, whether or not it changes me or not. Now, uh, he does have a point, and give him credit here, that it, it should be transforming our lives. 
toward the glory of Christ. Uh, when we study theology, when we study who God is, it should be transforming our lives. And a lot of people don't allow it to transform their lives, unfortunately. They just study theology. Maybe you've gone to seminary and you don't let it transform your life. But I can remember myself, my own uh, ministry and my own study in, in seminary, and I can just remember being deeply, deeply transformed because I wanted to know who God was. I wanted to know and study his word and know it for myself. So it's all about your attitude and and your approach. Um, so, but theology is objectively true. What we know about God and what we we can find out in his word and understand is objectively true. Doesn't change or doesn't become true when it when it affects me. So that's a that's a tenuous uh, uh, expression uh, thing that he expresses there. So in the next section, at about the twenty minute mark, um, Bill obfuscates again and and, and creates more confusion uh, because he says he and I give him credit. He said Jesus never laid aside his divinity, um, which contradicts other statements in his books. Uh, and I ask the question then: Well, well, which is it? Did he lay aside his divinity and do his miracles as a man? which is what he's taught for years, or was he completely God and did all his miracles as God? He, he seems to want it both ways. Uh, he seems to want Jesus to have done his miracles as a man so that we can do them too, but, but you can't have it both ways. Either Jesus was fully God and fully man and did everything on earth as a man and God simultaneously, or he didn't. That means Jesus must have done his miracles as fully God and fully man, never one to the detriment of the other, as all the councils of antiquity have explained, or, or he didn't. So the teaching of antiquity in Christendom is that Jesus was fully God, fully man, not one to the detriment of the other, or the, or the distillation of the other, or one was more prevalent than the other. They were both there to be seen perfectly together in one perfect homoousis, as the, as the councils of antiquity describe, the, the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon. So Jesus is explained through Christian history as perfectly, fully God and fully man, not one uh, uh, overpowering the other, not one uh, drawing away from the other, not one being distilled by the other. They're both there presently in Jesus' perfect um, um, uh, God-man status. Um, and, and so he has, Bill Johnson has spoken before and said Jesus did lay aside his divinity, but his main point is that Jesus could not have done his miracles as God or else we would not be able to uh, mimic them or, or copy them. And, and that's not true. Jesus did his miracles as fully God and fully man. Now he may not have drawn on his prerogatives as God to do those miracles, uh, but, but I mean, you know, man can't walk on water. <laughs> so, uh, he, he had to pull on his, his divine prerogatives at some point to do his miracles. Certainly. We have, to, we have to admit that in some way. Jesus did uh, access his divine prerogatives to, um, 
to stop the laws of nature. When when people walk on go on water, they sink. They don't. They can't stand on water. Uh, so he had to have uh, accessed his divine prerogatives in some way. Uh, Bill indicates at the twenty. 20 minute and 22nd mark that the church of Jesus Christ has wrestled with the divinity of Christ for 2000 years. And that right there, my friends is a bold faced lie. These theological positions were solidified at the council of Nicaea and the council of Chalcedon. Go look them up. I might even put them in the comments for you. These are not debated anymore. The debate is over. If you do not teach and practice what is in line with the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon, particularly on the divinity of Christ, then you stand clearly outside the biblical Christian Orthodox position. And because it matters what you teach about Jesus Christ. If Jesus is merely a man, then he cannot save you. Uh, likewise, if he's only God and not a man or, or, or a man and only God, not God uh, on this earth, he can't save. He has to be a man and God. Um, he must be in the line of Adam and he must be God, perfect in purity to secure our redemption. These things are not, have not been debated for 2000 years. They were debated at the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon and solidified. If you did not agree with the council of Chalcedon and the council of Nicaea, then you stand outside of Christian orthodoxy, period. So they're not debated. He's not correct on that. Now, people debated them who were heretics and were condemned as heretics, but the debate is over as far as who Jesus is. They're not debated anymore. So then uh, at the 22 minute 30 mark, uh, Bill becomes emotional. Of course, he's very good at becoming emotional and says he's got to know what's possible by following this man. What, what he means by saying that is that Johnson teaches that that some moment Jesus is the example that we can follow. So by perfect theology, uh, he means that Jesus is the example of the father. He says this in other places in his books. Uh, that we can follow. He's that example that we can follow, meaning uh, that we can do the stuff he did, uh, including all of his miracles. So Jesus uh, illustrated perfectly the Father. And so Bill Johnson is, is going to go after Jesus in that vein. Everything he did, I can also do. At the 23-minute 10 mark, uh, Johnson says the Old Testament did not reveal God as Father or as the Father in the way that Jesus did. So what we've got here, what he's saying here is we, we have an Old Testament that reveals God in a different way than he is revealed in the New Testament or by Jesus. Uh, this is precarious in many ways, but mainly because God never changes. God is immutable. Uh, that means he cannot change. Uh, God does not reveal himself differently in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament. Uh, is, he different, is he a different God in the Old Testament? If he is a different God in the Old Testament than the New Testament, then he can neither be the God of the New Testament or the Old Testament, because in both Testaments, he is described as immutable and unchanging. 
Um, and it says of Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't say that Jesus is a different God than the God of the Old Testament, but Johnson here comes very, very close to saying that God has revealed himself differently in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. And that's a very, very tenuous position because it might come close to meaning or him meaning that Jesus is a different God than the God of the Old Testament um, because the God in the Old Testament was not revealed as a father. Um, that's a very challenging and tenuous position because God is immutable. He does not change. And so uh, Bill then continues uh, in that same vein, and he says that Jesus came to reveal the Father and that it was his main reason in coming to this earth. This is incredibly inaccurate. Uh, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Uh, Matthew 5, 17 says, do you think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. Um, he came to call sinners. Matthew 9, 13 says, but go and learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He came to bring a sword in Matthew 10, 34 through 35. Um, to turn a father against the mother and a brother against the uh, uh, the mother, daughter against the mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. It says he came to preach in Mark 1, 38. Let us go elsewhere because I came to preach. That is why I've come. He came to bring fire to the earth in judgment, Luke 12, 49. Jesus says he came in his father's name in John 5, 43. He came to do the will of the Father in John 6.38. It says in John 9.39, he came for judgment. Jesus says, for I have, for judgment I have come to this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And then it says in John 10.10, he came to give life in all its fullness. The thief, uh, actually, in that context, it was the Pharisees, not the the uh, the devil, the thief, the, those who would thieve away. Um, the Pharisees were stealing away. They want to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Uh, he said he said he came as a light. John twelve forty six. I have come into this world as a light, so that no one who believes in me will stay in darkness. And then, most importantly, he came to lay his life down. John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus says, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it back again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This command or this charge I have received from my father. <laughs> he misses these things. So Johnson's view is that he, uh, Jesus has come to display who the father is. He does do that, but that's not his main purpose. Johnson uh, confuses the issue and says that Jesus' main purpose was to display the father. That's not it at all. He came to lay his life down as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He misses the point there. Of course, uh, he has come to represent the Father, but that's a very one-sided view of Jesus. Jesus has come for all the previous reasons stated, 
And it says nowhere plainly in scripture that the main reason for his coming was to reveal the father. No passage that I'm aware of. So please, if you if you see a passage or know a passage where Jesus says the main reason for his coming was to reveal the father, hit me up in the comments. I'd love to hear that. At the 24 minute mark, uh, again, I say Bill Johnson's very good at becoming emotional and showing how, how dear and tender of a person he is. Um, and he gets emotional at the 24 minute mark again. And, uh, he talks about the woman caught in adultery and he says, what father of us would not do the same thing if our daughter was in trouble, we'd come there and we'd help. And of course we would, uh, but he also compares the earthly fathering to what the heavenly father is like. In some ways, the heavenly father is like us, but we are not the measure of good fathering. God is. So he compares our fathering, you know, we would go in there and, and take care of the, our daughter if, if she were caught in such a situation. And same thing with the father in heaven. He does the same thing, but he's turning it around. It's upside down. Our fathering is not the measure of good fathering. God is the measure of good fathering. And he makes us the center. This is, again, how Bethel tends to do this me-centric or uh, narcissist-type centric ministry. We're the center of the, of the thing. And we show, again, how, how good everything is. It's, uh, just, it's backwards. God is the center and the measure of good fathering. And what a father, what the father God is like, not us. Bill said, uh, Jesus modeled what life can be like for anyone who had no sin and was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is very precarious, and it comes close to uh, Pelagianism. Pelagius was a, uh, a, a, someone who was condemned in, as a heretic in the early Christian church, and he fought against Augustine, and uh, they, they combated for ideas, uh, and Augustine, uh, uh, he, Pelagius was eventually condemned as a heretic, and Pelagianism is the view that there is no sin nature. So um, he says here, Jesus modeled what life can be like for anyone who had no sin and who was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, of course, was a sinlessly perfect and was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So he is saying here, Jesus is the model and we can do it too. We can have no sin and we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And all the things that Jesus did, we also can mimic or likewise do. And this is a precarious because it, it can lead to an idea or a concept or a belief that there is no sin nature. I have no sin anymore. And uh, that's not true. The Bible's pretty clear. He who claims to have no sin is a liar and the truth does not exist in him. So uh, we have sin till the day we die. We are forgiven past, present, and future of our sins. And we can walk in holiness. It is possible now before Christ. It was not possible to walk you know, in, in holiness. Now it is possible to walk in holiness. We can live a holy life, but we will never live without sin. So it's a precarious uh, situation, and uh, that's a very dangerous theology. So run from it. If anybody says you have no sin, um, first of all, they're liars. The Bible says they're liars, but it's a dangerous position for us to believe that we have no sin. 
Uh, so here comes the contradiction. Uh, Bill has said already in this podcast that Jesus was fully, eternally God, but now he goes into his thoughts that Jesus did his miracles only as a man. He says, now if he did all his miracles, quote, now if he did all his miracles as God, obviously I'm still impressed. I'm not offended. I'm there on the sidelines cheering, and he goes the hand clap. But if I discover that he did these miracles his miracles as the son of man, then I realize he has just set a standard. Not only can I follow, I must follow. So problematic here is that Jesus is, in Bill Johnson's view, only did his miracles as the son of man or as a man. He was careful here in this video. He didn't say as a man. He said as the son of man. Um, which is actually a, a hint at his divinity, funny enough, in, in Old Testament. The, the term son of man was a hint at the divinity of Christ in Daniel. But in previous sermons and previous books, he has said very clearly that Jesus only did his miracles as a man, not as God. <clears throat> Problematic here is that Jesus is not divisible. Either he did everything as God or nothing. He either did everything as a man or nothing as a man. He either did everything as God and man at the same time, or he did nothing as God and man. Jesus is undivisible or indivisible. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He can't turn it on and off. You know, you can't say, well, I'm God walking on earth and I'll just turn it off for this miracle of walking on water or something. I'm turning my God, taking my God card out right? And, 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 and putting that on the shelf. He can't do that. So everything he did in his 33 years of life on this earth, he did as God and man simultaneously. He's not divisible. He is indivisible. The reason that Johnson and this movement tend to want to diminish, diminish the deity of Jesus, especially while doing his miracles, is they want him to be more human-like so they can perform the same miracles as Jesus. They are so signs and wonders oriented that if Jesus did his signs and wonders as God, then we as Christians could not rep replicate them. Uh, we must be able to replicate Jesus' signs and wonders because they're so signs and wonders oriented. Uh, man would not be able to rep replicate the signs and wonders done by God in their uh, view or in, in Johnson's view. But if he did them as a man, then we're more capable of replicating those same miracles. Uh, in the 30th minute, Johnson says that we owe the world that example. He's been saying this thing for, for a long time. We owe the world an experience. We owe the world an example. By that, he means the example of Jesus. Uh, their theology includes the experience. We owe the world an experience. We owe the world that Jesus experienced, meaning we ought to behave and do the things Jesus did in this world, we owe the world that type of miraculous experience. Uh, this is problematic uh, as, we, as well, firstly, because no one in human history has done the things that Jesus has done. He is a singular character in human history. He stands alone at the top of the mountain of human existence. No one has even come close to his teaching, his miracles, his life of purity, holiness, impact, 
and the scope of his influence. No one. So if this type of experience is owed to people of the world, then we have failed miserably. No, we owe the people of the world the gospel of Jesus. That sets people free from sin. When they trust and believe in Jesus Christ, we don't owe them an experience of someone presenting a life that looks maybe sort of like Jesus or a life that does some kind of maybe random miracle like Jesus. Secondly, this just puts an enormous burden on people to perform the miracles that Jesus performed or to be like Jesus because we owe the world that type of experience. If you're not like Jesus and you don't act like him and you don't perform the miracles like him, then you have robbed the world of the experience that we owe people as Christians. This is too high of a standard. And again, no one in human history has provided that type of experience. Not Bill Johnson, no one at Bethel, no one in the New Apostolic Reformation has offered the true Jesus experience because he is a singular character in human history. No one has done the miracles of Jesus. Jesus had some uh, 46 recorded miracles as far as I can see. Um, and no one has even mimicked a, a, a half of them. So if you aren't providing 46 miracles in your lifetime, including walking on water, doing something greater than walking on water and doing something better than turning water into wine, then have you robbed people around you of the Jesus experience? This is highly problematic. Yeah. We don't owe people the Jesus experience. You and I cannot be Jesus. We cannot mimic the, the miracles of Jesus. We can't even produce someone who comes close to the scope and the amount and the power of the, of the miracles of Jesus. And John says, many more miracles did he do, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So what are the point of Jesus' miracles? Not that you and I can do them too, but that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and we may have life in his name. You don't have that pressure on you, Christian. Don't put that pressure on yourself because Jesus didn't put it on you. Jesus came and showed and displayed his power so that you may believe that he is God, that he is the Messiah, the Christ of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, um, uh, then uh, Farrelly, uh, Dan Farrelly says that uh, if you don't want to see a miracle, you won't see a miracle. <laughs> it's interesting. So if you don't want it, or, or the idea is if you want it, it will happen. If, but if you don't want it, then it won't happen. Um, I suppose he's talking about the uh, parents of the man born blind in John 9 is the context there. So that seems to put the onus on you, whether or not you'll, you might see a miracle. Wow, this is again a heavy, heavy pressure on people to produce miracles when that's no, I don't know of any place in scripture 
that shows or or asks us to have a desire for miracles, and then the desire actually produces a miracle. That's a heavy pressure. That's a real heavy pressure. So um, these are the type of things that if you get involved with Johnson or, or NAR or Bethel's teachings, you will have a heavy pressure put on you to produce miracles. Uh, Johnson talks about John 12, and he says that the people who heard the Father's voice from heaven were predisposed to not believing in miracles, and so they did not believe that God spoke from heaven. The text makes no such indication that the reason that the people didn't believe it was God who, that it was God who was speaking from heaven was that they were predisposed to not believe in miracles. There's nowhere indicated in the text. These are the ways that this movement creates a narrative that supports their emphasis on the supernatural. Uh, here's the text in John 12, uh, 27 through 36. Uh, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So God is speaking from heaven. The crowd that stood there heard it said that it uh, that it was thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Uh, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus didn't need to hear the Father necessarily. It was for the sake of those there. Now is judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from heaven, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, the light is coming for uh, among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And who is the light of the world? Jesus. He's standing right before him. So they go on to discuss uh, Johnson and Fairley, go on to discuss John 12, and that it displays that people can in, interpret supernatural phenomena or God working supernaturally in different ways. They say that the people who heard this noise from heaven and interpreted it three different ways uh, so also we can interpret God working in supernatural ways differently. Um, this is really tiring and exhausting, I have to say, because who can know uh, then some, something is God and, and what isn't? Uh, is it up to personal interpretation or you need a prophet or an apostle? to interpret the supernatural for you, which is what they do often. They have these uh, conferences where uh, a, a prophet will interpret the weird, wacky, and wonderful things. That was on Chris Valentin's Facebook page uh, a couple years ago where Dan McCollum came to Bethel to interpret the weird, wacky, and wonderful supernatural uh, occurrences that happen to people. So they need people to interpret those things for them, namely apostles and prophets. Um, that's why these guys are doing these videos, uh, so they can interpret all the supernatural stuff that you don't understand uh, because you are predisposed to not understand the supernatural, but we, we are predisposed to understand it. We can help you interpret and make sense of God's supernatural work for you. 
Um, so yeah, this is, you see how the power structure works. Uh, if you're predisposed to understand it, then you can, but if you're predisposed not to, then we have to, you have to have, to have, have some help. Um, yeah. Then, um, they go into a section on the theology of sickness in this episode. Uh, this section basically confirms everything that Bethel and Bill Johnson has taught over the years. This whole video series is really a PR stunt in the long run and supposed to help people understand, hey, we're not really as crazy as you think we are. But this section actually here on the theology of sickness, um, it confirms everything that Bethel and Bill Johnson has taught over the years about the nature of sickness and their beliefs on healing and that it be- and that healing belongs to the atonement of Christ. Um, yeah, I'll, I can attach my thoughts down in the uh, bottom of the show notes here. I can actually attach my notes. Um, a theological absurdity like healing being part of the atonement of Christ will always work itself out in absurd and abusive practices. Like, for instance, praying for people who have Down syndrome, that Down syndrome would go away. It's happened to us. Our daughter is, has Down syndrome, and Bill Johnson and Bethel have taught on several occasions um, that Down syndrome should be healed in the womb. Um, and he's let himself be prophesied over by, a prof- by the prophet Brian Karn um, that he will have an anointing on his life for uh, the disappearance of Down syndrome or that the Down syndrome would go away. Um, to be sure, critics of this movement are not saying that healing is not for today. Not this critic, anyways. Now, some may say that healing is not for today, but I don't think I don't know of a critic who, of this movement who says that healing, supernatural healing, does not happen. It does not take place. I don't know of anybody who says that. But what we are saying is that healing is not bound up in the atonement of Christ. Hear that for me, please. Hear that from me. Healing does happen. Supernatural healing can happen. God can heal people. I've seen my brother gotten a, a death, a near death experience car accident, and he was healed, not in the way we thought he might be healed. It took a different road, but God healed him and restored him. So please don't get it from me that supernatural healing does not take place to more, anymore in this, in this day and age, but healing is not bound up in the atonement of Christ. Otherwise, we would never get sick and die because most people die of some sickness or illness. This movement teaches that healing comes from Satan, which is also not accurate. You would be hard-pressed to find one physical ailment in the Bible which is given by Satan. Maybe Job, but that story is obviously overseen and allowed by God. Interestingly enough, Satan didn't even mention, mention Job to God. God bought him up. It's funny. Um, but that story, again, it's God, Satan does give the boils. Satan does give those things. And so God allowed him to do those things. We cannot claim healing on the basis of the atonement. All these teachers use passages of scripture, which contexts are not talking about physical healing, but spiritual healing, like Isaiah 53, um, and forgiveness of sins and iniquities. If you look at Isaiah 53 and Peter, those passages are clearly 
talking about iniquities. I mean, if you look at the whole chapter, it's just sin. It's just talking about sin and the healing, the spiritual healing that Christ provided. Bad theology hurts people. And this is one of those theologies that hurt people most within the last 20 or 30 years. It hurts people because often people deny treatment for illnesses that are easily curable. I've seen that recently. People proclaim that they're healed or others prophesy that others are healed. Those people then stop their treatment and then they die. When their treatment could have saved them or at least given them a chance. It hurts people because the disabled, chronically ill, and those who have a cold or contract COVID-19 don't fit into the special few who have been healed or never get sick. It hurts people like us because we have been constantly insulted that we don't have enough faith or that our daughter will be healed of her Down syndrome, which I actually don't even want. I want her to have Down syndrome. I love her Down syndrome. It hurts people in that they demand things that God never promised and are terribly disappointed and disillusioned in regard to healing and even most recently, a resurrection from the dead. I can't imagine what the family um, of the uh, poor Olive at Bethel are feeling. Are they disillusioned? Did God actually promise her resurrection? Why didn't she wake up? Why didn't she just get up? Get up, Olive, was the hashtag they used to call the entire church to pray, global church to pray for their daughter to be resurrected. Why didn't she wake up? If, if healing is part of the atonement, then why didn't she just get up? This is, uh, can bring and can, can produce a terrible disillusionment and disappointment in God. If God promised healing, why didn't he bring it through? Why didn't it happen? And these are the things that have uh, plagued the charismatic and the uh, apostolic and the word of faith movement for years because people lose their faith. They walk away from God. And um, because they, because if God promised it, why didn't it happen? Um, in, in this theological system, uh, we should pray the Down syndrome away. <laughs> We should pray that this child is not born with Down syndrome. Bill Johnson has a, a testimony about that um, where he uh, says the high watermarks of their ministry will be that children who are diagnosed with Down syndrome in the uterus, a pre prenatal diagnosis, will be born normal and will not have Down syndrome. Um, the, I would argue that, that a biblical, Christ-honoring, Christ-loving church would have more children with Down syndrome, more births with Down syndrome, more adoptions of children with Down syndrome than less. Uh, that, that is what a Christ-honoring, Jesus-loving church would look like. More Down syndrome, not less. If this were true, then all believers, as soon as they put their trust in Christ, would immediately be free from illness, poverty, uh, uh, death, because Christ bore our illness and poverty on the cross, just as he did our sins. If our sins are forgiven and are gone, so also should, our, should be our sickness, death, disease, torment, poverty. But in actuality, they're not done away with. 
The truth is, even the Christian will struggle under these things until we receive our glorified bodies and death is finally done away with at the resurrection of the righteous that awaits those who have put their faith in Christ. I think of one of my heroes in the faith, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who has spent more than half of her life in a wheelchair and for the last several years has actually been battling cancer. Or I think of the family that we met at a disability retreat that had a daughter with literally a one in a million disease that disallowed her from even being outside ever. She and like three other people in the world had this disease. And the family that could not go outside because of the respiratory issues of their daughter. Uh, That camp we met them um, was the first time that this person, this daughter, this daughter theirs had ever been outside in 21 years. These people had a deep and unbelievable faith in God. I have met people, uh, children with spina bifida, cerebral palsy, trisomy 11, trisomy 18, autism, and so many other more rare disabilities. I've seen people carry incredible weights on their shoulders with their kids And to lay this unbearable burden on people to say that they must have more faith so that their kids can be healed? I know of people who have taken their kids with disabilities to Bethel and they come home disappointed. This is and certainly can be crushing. This movement is placing an unbearable burden on people and it can crush the faith of many. Many walk away from God because they believe that God must heal them because a faith teacher says God only ever always heals, and it is part of what Jesus did for them on the cross. But that is not the promise of God. Because of a faith teacher, these people tie the truth of the gospel together with healing. And many of them believe that God cannot exist And that his gospel cannot be true because it didn't work in their lives. Besides all of the hurt it can cause, there are several scriptures that point to God's glorious design and plan in disability. First, we see John chapter 9. And the disciples asked, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus answered them and said, neither this man nor his parents sinned that he was born blind. He was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. God allowed and created him blind so that his works might be displayed in his disability. Another is Moses, uh, Moses encountering God in the burning bush. And God said to Moses, who made man's mouth, who made him mute or deaf or seeing, or blind, is it not I, the Lord? And the answer, of course, is yes. God made man, man's mouth. He made him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind. These are just a few examples in the scriptures of God's good design and disability. There's so much more evidence of God's good and and wonderful design and disability uh, than there is evidence that the atonement of Christ pays for our physical healing here in this life. Way more evidence. As Bill describes uh, in this theology of healing, uh, he does it in more detail at the 38-minute mark, 3840. He describes an instance 
or two instances actually where healing was not only not possible, but God was telling him that if he asked for healing for this person, he would grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is extremely contradictory and confusing. The Bible says nowhere that praying for healing for someone would grieve the Holy Spirit. The few passages that talk about grieving or quenching the Spirit of God have nothing to do with not praying for someone. The main passage we imagine about grieving the Spirit of God is found in Ephesians uh, 4, 25 through 34, through 32. It says, quote, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This passage has nothing to do with not praying for someone. Otherwise, I would grieve the Holy Spirit. It has only to do with not disobeying and living a holy life. So, so Bill can't grieve the Holy Spirit by not praying for someone for healing, which is what he claims. At least he cannot claim it as a biblical precedent. So, and, and then it's confusing because, uh, wait, aren't all people supposed to be healed? He just said that in his theology in, in, this, in this podcast, there's no room for God not healing. He doesn't want to create a theology for sickness. And so either it's God's will to heal all people or it's not. And so why wouldn't he pray for it? If it's God's will to heal all people and it's bound up in the atonement of Christ, then why would it grieve the Holy Spirit to pray for someone to be healed? It just is contradictory at best. (laughs) At the 39-minute mark, uh, Johnson says he cannot pray if it's your will, quote-unquote, because that's a prayer of unbelief. That's very interesting. So um, praying your will be done um, is a prayer of unbelief, apparently. What about the Lord's prayer, your will be done? Uh, Can you not pray that? Or maybe he's only talking about praying, Lord, heal this person if it's your will. Uh, But we're commanded to pray for the will of God to be done. That is one of the main things Jesus teaches us in how we ought to pray. But I guess uh, Bill Johnson doesn't want God's will to be done. In the case of healing, only healing is possible, not God's will. So praying, God, if it's your will, heal this person, that's not a prayer of faith. That's a prayer of disbelief. Um, but that's far from biblical. Uh, the Lord's prayer, the Lord teaches us to pray, your will be done. Um, and then um, he says here, he uses, uh, Bill, Bill Johnson uses Isaiah 53 to show the healing is part and a promise for every believer and that it's a present reality in the kingdom. And Jesus made provision for it. Um, 
it is a very flimsy biblical argument because he doesn't present any biblical evidence outside of Isaiah 53, uh, which is talking about sin, obviously, and Jesus made provision for it, giving no biblical evidence in the New Testament, and that it's a present reality, which is obviously not realized by most people. Uh, people, people aren't healed. There are Christians who are not healed because um, Christians get sick. They get colds. We get the flu. How many Christians have gotten COVID-19? How many Christians or people at Bethel have gotten COVID-19? They had to shut down the school. Um, so people obviously get sick. It's not part of the atonement. It's not part of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Uh, by his stripes, we are healed is talking about sin and his, uh, his atoning sacrifice for us. Uh, Johnson said that, uh, then said that this woman who he prayed for, uh, had been sick for a while. He prayed that, uh, she would go home to heaven. Uh, why had she been sick for a while? If it's not God's will for anybody to be sick, then why was she sick to begin with? Why would we, why would she need to die? If it's God's will to heal, then why would he even pray for her to go home? And if she died, why not pray for her to be resurrected? Why would he pray for her to die? Uh, these things all do not square with their theology that God never allows sickness or he always heals. Johnson uh, then at the 41-minute mark describes that sometimes if people are in unforgiveness, they can't be healed. He'll often ask if someone needs to forgive someone and then go ahead and forgive the person, and then all of a sudden they're healed. So you have to get that forgiveness thing out of the way first. Uh, this is as well a heavy burden, and it's awful. Uh, he has either unintentionally or unintentionally created conditions for healing. So either it's God's will to heal all the time, and it's part of the atonement and doesn't need any extra steps or conditions, or it's not. But this is a condition he puts on it. You have to go and, and be, if you're in unforgiveness, then that might block your healing. Uh, it's really bad. It puts these heavy, heavy burdens on people. Uh, secondly, uh, this could lead to a viewpoint uh, that you have to earn your healing or keep it or keep your healing by forgiving everyone all the time, which this movement does teach. You have to live in forgiveness. And if you don't forgive people, then you might not be healed. You might block your healing. This is a, a huge manipulation and spiritually abusive that, that healing would only come if you do this or that or, or you're living in this sin or that sin or whatever. This is incredibly uh, abusive and manipulative. It, it basically says God's holding your healing up here and something's sort of blocking your healing. And if you remove that blockage, you remove that sin or that, that unforgiveness, then God can release your healing and you can receive it. I, it's really terribly abusive and puts a weight on people, puts a, a, a yoke on people that they cannot bear up under. Uh, Johnson describes how sometimes you have to do certain things for healing and that it's prescriptive. Sometimes you have to walk through and jump through certain hoops, uh, so to speak, to receive that healing. He described how Jesus said to someone, go wash the pool at the pool of Siloam. Or another one, put mud on the eyes, etc. cetera. Uh, these are really bad comparisons. Um, we, <laughs> do we compare our healing work to the healing work of Jesus? But again, it sort of fits their theology. If Jesus did it, then we can do it too. 
Um, he then said, we have to do sometimes creative miracles where someone was missing part of the muscle of their leg. Um, he told the person to walk back and forth in the room and come back. And then God had done that miracle or something, meaning regrowing the muscle in their leg that was missing. Uh, I guess he means, uh, God grew this person's muscle that was missing. I presume, uh, first of all, to compare these miracles of Jesus and say we ought to do likewise is, is a crazy standard. Um, otherwise, we'd just be going around putting mud on people's eyes, basically, um, who are blind. Uh, Jesus is God, and he has reasons for doing the things he does. We are not. So comparing these things uh, like comparing or like comparing apples to oranges, uh, to claim that you could grow someone's muscle back is quite a whopper. Uh, it's an extremely incredible claim. And how does he base that? I mean, just by his own testimony, he said it happened. I mean, <laughs> it's quite a tall tale. Uh, funny uh, how these guys never produce any medical evidence um, or even diagnose diagnosis of a missing muscle. Um, you know, it's interesting. So, but, but even on that standard, the, the Bible's clear. Jesus says, uh, oh, depart from me, I never knew you, to those who would actually do some sort of miracle. They said, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty mighty works in your name and, and heal people and, and, and all these things? And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. So will miracles happen? Uh, I think they will. Um, I, don't, I don't doubt that Bethel has miracles happening uh, there. But uh, the Bible's pretty clear that there will be miracles that happen and are done in Jesus' name, but they were not blessed by him or uh, the people who performed them did not know Christ because he will say on the final day of judgment, depart from me for I never knew you. So there's that. <laughs> um, Johnson says uh, we, do not, we do sometimes need to give an action for people to connect their faith to. So either the healing is a promise from God or it requires an action to connect to faith. Uh, which is it? Uh, is it according to your faith or is it a promise that is made a provision made for by G made, uh, made available to us by Jesus? If it's a provision in the atonement of Jesus, then why would we need faith besides the initial faith we have in Jesus atoning work for us? Or an act of faith, or why do we need an act of faith connected to it? Um, that doesn't make any sense. If it's a provision made for us in the atonement of Jesus, like Bill Johnson says, uh, 2,000 years ago, he made a purchase for us. So if it's a provision made in the atonement, why do we need any faith-connecting activity at all? It's purchased for us. You don't you can't take a car back and say, well, well, I need more of this or that. The other thing, like, like Johnson says, you can't take your car back and return it. It's already purchased. Uh, so in the 44th minute uh, to the 46th minute of this uh, episode uh, of Rediscovering Bethel, uh, they say they will cor correct any of their staff members who say to people that someone didn't have enough faith, and that's why uh, they were not healed. He says that's cruel. Give them credit here. What Johnson is, is missing here, though, is that to say that the disabled community or, or, or the chronically ill or the Down syndrome community, that, that, that they should be healed, that is cruel. Um, it's saying to Johnny Erickson Tata, um, every time someone prays for her healing to get up out of the wheelchair, that is cruel. 
Um, this is a cruel theological perspective, and by itself, it treats people who are chronically ill as if something were wrong with them just on its face. Something's wrong with you because you have this chronic illness. Something's wrong with you if you have Down syndrome. Something's wrong with you if you are sitting in a wheelchair. Um, because it is, this, this whole theological perspective assumes that something is wrong with people who are not healed or disabled or who have Down syndrome uh, or have some physical problem that is not healed through prayer or whatever. This is a cruel perspective, even though he says that they're not cruel. Bill explains then at the 49th minute a story about how he was trying to heal someone from arthritis and somehow he was blocked. But then all of a sudden he started feeling warmth all over his body and his neck. Uh, Bethel started doing this practice a year or two ago, when, uh, which they were called healing in proxy. Um, and it's in several of their sermons, uh, services. Uh, I've seen it in several of their services. Bill or the leader will ask if there's, they know someone who's sick um, and they will get those people to stand up in the service and stand in their friend's place uh, that they're going to be healed for them in their place or in proxy. Now, uh, can someone be healed for someone else? Can someone feel physical, physically something someone else is, he is feeling or in their healing? Uh, these practices, as far as I'm aware, are not seen in the Bible. Even in Jesus' ministry, no one was healed in proxy for someone else or in someone else's place, um, or felt in their own body a warmth of electricity or something like that um, for the healing that someone else was experiencing. This is, wow, this is a dangerous, dangerous precedent that mimics some sort of a cult-type practice but does not belong to Christianity. They're sort of just kind of making stuff up. So, if you know what what you've got here is you've got it's like the the movies you know you've got these movies that are these blockbuster movies so you've got Transformers one you know the first Transformers film it's awesome I mean you look at the thing it's it's a it's a a miracle of of CGI you know is on the screen you're watching these things transform before your eyes they're flying around and and you know it's really amazing. So they got to one-up themselves. The next Transformer film has to be better than that. And the CGI has to be tighter. And, and you know, the, so they're in this series of the Transformer films. They've Each one has got to top the next one. So for this movement, it's an experiential movement. You've got to top the next thing. So what do we do beyond healing people? We'll heal people who aren't even here. We'll heal people in people's place. Hey, if you've got a friend who's got cancer, stand up. Oh, I'm feeling something in my liver, you know. Oh, they got a liver problem. Oh, they're on dialysis. Oh, wow, I can be healed for them in proxy. It's this, it's this uh, you know, healing 2.0, you know, or, it, you know, it's the healing uh, blockbuster series, film series. What are we going to do next that would top the last thing that we did? And this is part of that. They have to do something more spectacular, more stupendous, more extraordinary. And so healing people in people's place, why not? You know, stand up if you know someone who's, who needs healing. And we'll pray for them and you can be their proxy. That's really wild. So they're making stuff up. 
They believe so deeply in healing and that healing should happen everywhere and at all times, at all places, that they create systems where people can be healed for other people or stand in proxy for other people. Sorry, they're creating stuff out of thin air. <laughs> this is not a Christian practice. So Fairley uh, says, uh, Dan Fairley says at the, about the 50th, 50th minute that there are no mechanisms or not mechanisms or something like that, but they're just relationship builders. So if healing doesn't happen, if these things don't take place like we think they ought to, these relationship, these are just relationship builders. The things that Bill Johnson describes are not mechanisms, but it sounds an awful lot like a mechanism or a formula or a condition to me. You know, if you, if this, then that, if that, then this, if, if you feel like you're going to connect their faith to their healing, then make them walk across the room to, to build that muscle back. Um, if there's a sin or unforgiveness, you better take care of that or else it's blocking the healing. They sound an awful lot like mechanisms to me or conditions. Um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you guys tell me what you think when you watch it. There's a lot of if this, then that. Do this, then that. If you think that, then this. Um, if no faith there, if you don't sense faith in the room, then, you know, you got to build faith in the room. Or, you know, there's just a lot of uh, mechanisms and stuff you have to understand to be able to heal somebody. Again, all these possible conditions must make people exhausted. I'm exhausted just listening to it. Like, if I do that, then this, and if I do that, then that, and I have to do this as well. I have to think about this kind of faith. And uh, if there, if I don't sense faith in the room or if I sense unforgiveness, it's a lot of stuff. I'm just exhausted and weary listening to it. And I know people in the movement are weary and exhausted as well. I pray if you're watching and you watch this to this point, if you're feeling weary and exhausted, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Throw off these theologies. Throw off this healing theology that says you have to do this and that and the other thing to be healed. That's not a promise of God. Throw it off. I beg you. It's making you weary. It's making you exhausted. So, yeah, by doing this uh, specific prayer for someone's healing, by doing this or that or the other thing, it sounds like uh, to be able to know how to do it, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to heal people properly. And on top of that, it's very subjective. So uh, I don't know if you've experienced that in this movement. If you're in this movement, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, make a comment in the comment section. Um, then Bill Johnson adds that enduring faith is also a way where healing can come. Again, very subjective, not scripture that I'm aware of. Uh, there's no basis for enduring faith bringing any kind of miracle. Uh, here now, uh, he talks about, funny enough, Johnny Erickson Tata and her disability. He has no good answers for this for Johnny. How is she still in a wheelchair? According to his theology, uh, she should just stand up and walk. Her healing was purchased by Jesus, according to Johnson on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's a present reality. Jesus made provision for it. So if healing is provided for, why doesn't Johnny just receive it? Because it's not a promise of the atonement. That's why. At the 55-minute mark, Bill talks about his son, uh, I believe uh, Eric, no, is Eric, yeah, Eric has a profound hearing loss 
Uh, and how does his son continue in his profound hearing loss? Bill has made no room for what has not happened yet. Why can't he just stick his fingers in his ear like he did with other people? Johnson claimed he stuck his fingers in people's ears and healed them and stuff like this. Why doesn't uh, he just do that for him? You know, sort of heal or heal thyself. What's What has not happened? Um, why does he have to even have enduring faith? If it's a purchase that's made 2,000 years ago, then why does he even need to have an enduring faith that would believe that it will happen at some point? Why doesn't Eric just proclaim his healing? Perfect sight right now in Jesus' name. Perfect hearing for his son in Jesus' name. Uh, you know, and his wife, Bill Johnson, we're praying, praying for Benny. We pray that God would heal her, but she's struggling through cancer right now. Why even struggle? The, just proclaim that she's healed and receive it. But the problem is that wasn't included in the atonement of Jesus Christ. I'll die on this hill, honestly. This is a doctrine of demons, I believe, and it harms people. Bad theology harms people. So his own son, he says, then has prayed for healing for other deaf people and not received healing himself. How contradictory is that? It's really, that's wild. Um, then they go to only the section of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign, but he's not in control. God doesn't control everything, but is in charge of everything. It's, he says it's like a parent who is not in control of everything in the house, but is in charge of everything in the family. Um, this is so bad. He doesn't give uh, credit to God for something like Hitler, or he opposes uh, most of what the Bible explains about God's sovereignty. Every movement of man, kings, rulers, all authorities under the heavens, he is in control and orchestrating it all. That's God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over Hitler. It sounds awful and sounds terrible, but he is in sovereign control of every detail, every movement of history, every point of history, everything that happen, happens under the sun, he is in control of it. He is infinitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the most high God, the Lord of heaven and earth, subject to no one, influenced by no one, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him. None can hinder him. So his own word expressly declares, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's in Isaiah 46 verse 10. It also says, he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand. That's in Daniel chapter four, verse 35. Divine sovereignty means that God is in fact God as well as in his name, that he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will. Rightly did the late Charles uh, Spurgeon say in his sermon on Matthew uh, 20, verse 15, he said this, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained 
their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God and his right hand to sit upon that throne. A.W. Pink says it this way uh, in his book, The Attributes of God, his absolute active continual reign over the heavens and the earth and even hell itself. It is his undisputed right to govern all that he has created as God by the free exercise of his supreme right rules over all with unhindered and unrivaled majesty. God always does as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, with whom he pleases. So, uh, I'll just give you some scripture for your uh, consideration. Psalm 103, 19. Psalm 19, uh, 96, verse 10. The Lord reigns. Proverbs 21, 1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He channels it and leads it wherever he wills. In Ephesians 1.11, we're predestined according to the counsel of his will. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Then Jesus talks about the sovereignty of God. Matthew 10, uh, verse 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? The Father does that. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than the sparrows. The sovereignty of God is the most comforting of all Christian theologies. There's more scripture, but I, I, I digress. I could go on and on. <laughs> I'll just maybe list some of those scriptures in the comments down below. Uh, R.C. Sproul said it this way, There are no maverick molecules in the universe. God is sovereign over everything. He controls everything from the deepest part of the Mariana Trench to the top of Mount Everest. Everything in all of creation is under his sovereign plan. And there is one plan. It's plan A. <laughs> there is no plan B. And there are no maverick molecules in the universe. So um, if you took Bill Johnson's view here to its logical conclusion, there are things that have happened in human history, church history, and even maybe our own personal lives that were not God's will. But the common view of sovereignty is that if it happened, it was God's will. The Bible is pretty clear through that, that if a thing takes place, it was the counsel of God. From the beginning of time to the end of everything, God has set his counsel up. And there is, like I said, a plan A. There's no plan B. If it happened, then it was his will. If it did not happen, then it was not his will. This plays into their healing theology though. So he says it's God's will to heal only all the time, but we know in reality that people get sick and they're not healed and, and die. Who Those who are faithful Christians. So if a Christian gets sick and dies, which happens a hundred percent of the time, we all die from something. Even Lazarus died a second time, the poor guy. Um, he was raised from the dead, but he died again. We all die from something. That's our, our end result of everyone's life. Then uh, that thing is, was God's will. On the other hand, Bill Johnson teaches that it's not God's will, and he, he cannot control or does not control for some reason these events. 
this stands outside of Scripture and opposes all the previous Scriptures I've read that we mentioned above. Dan Fairley then says that God is not, quote, omnicausal, meaning God did not cause all things, etc. He starts to play with the orthodox view of God's sovereignty, but, but it falls way short. God is not the author of evil or the cause of evil. God cannot tempt people to sin or be tempted by sin. All these previous scriptures give a better view of the kind of sovereignty uh, that God exhibits. Uh, why not go through the scriptures and describe the sovereignty of God as revealed in the scripture? Why not? Why, these guys are talking about sovereignty in this episode. Why not just take a few scriptures and explain the sovereignty of God, but they can't do it because it doesn't match their theology that God is uh, sovereign but not in control. So God doesn't uh, cause all things together uh, to work together to the purpose of his will. So, uh, of course, God is not the author of evil. He's the sovereign over it, but he's not the author of it. Uh, Johnson closed up this section uh, with this uh, relational journey type thing. God's sovereignty is not a relational journey. Or he says that, that, that you know, this thing, the sovereignty idea is a relational journey. God's sovereignty is not a relational journey. No one can thwart the plans of God, as seen in the previous scriptures we mentioned. No one can thwart the plans of God. Not, no one can counsel God that he should learn. No one can manipulate it, etc. So yes, God wants us in relationship with him through Jesus Christ, of course but not to counsel him in and about his sovereignty. He doesn't adjust himself to a relationship with us and say, well, since they're doing this, I think I'll do that. Since they're doing that, I think I'll do this. God doesn't uh, act according to his sovereign plan in relationship with us. He doesn't, we don't counsel him. He doesn't do things because we're doing this or that or the other thing in relationship. No, 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 no. God's sovereign plan stands before all time the counsel in the council of his will. Then they uh, move on to a section on the Passion Translation. Uh, Johnson only teaches or writes out of the NAS or an NKJV. He says, um, but that's not true. I know it's not true because in the last year I've seen him only teach out of the Passion Translation. I've never heard him preach out of the KJV or NAS in the last year. Now there may have been a time where he has, but he says he said. In his in this series in this in this uh, podcast that he only teaches out of the NAS or NKJV, but that's not true. I know it's not true because I've watched a lot over the past year. He does teach out of the Passion Translation almost all the time that I've heard in the last year. Um, they just don't address the critique of the Passion Translation. This video, so if you're expecting them to critique it at all, they don't critique it one bit. They only defend it. So Dan Fairley says that the difference between a paraphrase and a translation is that one translates from the Greek and the other one doesn't. That is exceptionally inaccurate. I don't know where he's getting that. Paraphrases and translations are all working from the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic texts of the ancient scriptures. <laughs> the, a paraphrase, of course, works from the Greek. They just paraphrase it. I mean, it it's blows me away. Uh, the other one translates directly or tries to stay very accurate according to the text, not putting paraphrases on the text. <laughs> so, of course, the, the paraphrases are working from the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. 
They just paraphrase it. That's what a paraphrase is. Paraphrasing is putting it into another set of words, putting it in another, you know, when you paraphrase someone's, did they say that exactly? No, I'm just paraphrasing. (laughs) I mean, it's like, wow. Does he know what paraphrasing is? Like, I wonder. Translation is trying to get the one-for-one idea from the original text. Um, And so the question in there that they put up is, is the Passion Translation heresy? And and of course, I mean... (laughs) The Passion Translation is deeply, deeply problematic. Uh, Bill opens this video by saying that uh, new Christians can't understand hither and thither and these and thous. And of course, this is a straw man argument. He's talking about the New King James or the King James Version. People don't understand what hither and thither mean and whatever, you know, these and thous. Um, this is a str- what you call a straw man argument. He makes the argument that the Passion Translation Bible is necessary because it's understandable, especially to new Christians, and that older translations, I guess he's talking about the King James Version, is not understandable because they use these and thous instead of you and, you know. The King James Version does often have challenging languages in it. I give him that. But there are certainly a plethora of truly understandable Bible versions that stay true to the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. The Passion Translation does not stay true to the original languages. You can look at Mike Winger has done a very good project. It's called The Passion Project, His Passion Project. Please check that out. I might put that in the link description down below. There's a series of videos on that. He has hired uh, biblical scholars in the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic to look at the Passion Translation, and they have basically come up with the con- with the with the conclusion that it is a deeply, deeply problematic translation of the Bible, and not a translation in in essence. Bill describes how he used the only, mostly the New American Standard, um, and only occasionally now he will put the Passion Translation in for that passion, <laughs> but that's not accurate. I've seen him, like I said, uh, preach regularly from it. Um, then Dan Fairley says that every Bible translation has an agenda. <laughs> this is also not accurate. And basically says that every Bible translation has an agenda or a theological angle, and the Passion Translation is just staying true to its agenda, just like every other Bible translation is staying true to their agendas. Um, If the agenda is to translate accurately the Bible into English or whatever language you're translating it into, then that's a good agenda. Otherwise, all other agendas of translation of the Bible are improper and have no reason to be translated in the Bible. (laughs) This Bible translation, the Passion Translation, has a new apostolic Reformation agenda. Like I said, look at Mike Winger's um, uh, uh, work on this. He's pawed out all the words that they add to the text. Uh, You can also read my chapter in my book, uh, Divergent Theology, um, and I lay out their extra-biblical revelation. I just give a few examples of how this Passion Translation adds to the text ideas that are not there. And they're typically NAR-type agendas. It is an incorrect and agenda-driven Bible, very clearly. Dan Fairley then says, uh, We've always had these single-person translations of the Bible. 
It's just that the church gets wigged out, he said, at times about the accuracy of those translations. People get wigged out with due cause that they obviously are not going to address in this short video. They're not going to address um, what's wrong with the tra Passion Translation. There is incredible mounting linguistic expertise that stands in direct opposition to this translation's approach, tactics, uh, agenda that Dan Fairley mentioned. They're not going to deal with it, it seems like. And they don't in this video. They don't deal with the uh, improprieties in that Bible translation. Dan Fairley particularly uh, misrepresents translation history and, and how translations have been done. He gives the impression that new translations only appear when schisms take place. Uh, this is also a very, very big misrepresentation of church history and the history of translations throughout the church. Mostly new translations of the Bible came about in church history because of the suppression of Bible translations in native languages. For instance, during the Reformation, when the Bible was not allowed to be translated outside of Latin and only taught in Latin so that the common person could not and would not understand it, Wycliffe translated the Bible uh, and Luther's translation of the Bible are all translations so that people could understand the Bible and have it in their own language. This is a very big misrepresentation of history and the history of translations. He mischaracterizes church history and manipulates it, manipulates church history to favor the Passion Translation. And just saying it's a response to a need is not um, appropriate. That's not what church history was about. Um, the Passion Translation is a theological response to a theological movement called the New Apostolic Reformation. Their movement needs a Bible translation that agrees and supports their aberrant theological positions, especially within the NAR terminology that does not appear in the original languages. They have to support their terminology. And uh, Mike Winger has a great breakdown of all the added words that are particularly new apostolic type words and that they don't and shows how they don't appear in any other English translations. Um, and, and so this translation is a reaction to those theological aberrations, giving them language and a translation of the Bible to seek to legitimize their aberrations. Dan Fairley goes on to say that the critical spirit, the, the people who are critiquing this translation, he says, it's not pretty, quote unquote, it's not pretty and it's not helpful. So these people, for instance, the academics uh, who Mike Winger has hired from seminaries and Bible colleges who are Greek and Hebrew professors have a critical spirit, quote unquote, and are, quote, not helpful and not pretty, end quote, meaning they're critical. They have a critical spirit against the Passion Translation, and it's ugly. This is laughable, man. First of all, that he would say that Greek and Hebrew professors and seminaries have a critical spirit, it's incredibly inflammatory. Uh, he's engaging in the same critical spirit by even saying this. It's a critique in the other direction. He's engaging himself in critique against those who have critiqued the Passion Translation. So does he himself have a critical spirit? Uh, so is his own critique not helpful and not pretty? Claiming that these men who have critiqued the translation have a religious or critical spirit is highly con condemning and judgmental. He's engaging in the same critique that he's condemning by critiquing and condemning those men. 
These men who've critiqued the translation are experts in their fields, namely in their biblical language or in the book that they looked at. They have some, some looked at Galatians, some look at uh, Song of Solomon and stuff like that. Uh, Brian Simmons is neither a biblical linguist, expert, nor a translator. Brian Simmons, in his uh, translation, should leave translation work to the experts who are linguists, and he is not one. Uh, he should leave the translation work to those experts who are linguists and translators and experts. Uh, Simmons should leave that work to people who, and stick to his revelations of heaven and visitations or whatever he has. Um, and he has had many visitations, apparently, from Jesus himself and told, uh, you know, and Simmons has claimed that Jesus told him to and breathed on him to uh, translate this Bible or this translation. Dan Fairley then encourages people or says at least that he reads these translations in his devotional time because it will, quote, unlock, whoa, I've never seen that, end quote, in the text. This is really dangerous because he's, he's given people permission to unlock things in the text of the Bible that might not necessarily be there in the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, and that is all for your spiritual growth during your devotional time. So use it in devotions, he says. This also plays into their theology that there are secrets that lay hidden for us to discover, like the Gnostic uh, heretics taught, that there are secrets um, for those elite few who can uncover them. Dan Fairley talks about a translation uh, that was made in English because the Church of England was splitting. He doesn't describe which translation he's talking about, but this uh, lends to and supports their theology that churches split church splits are not good. And he doesn't mention which translation he's talking about, but I'm not aware of any church split in which a new translation of the Bible was produced. I, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, I'm not aware of a schism that took place uh, with a Bible trend. Maybe the KJV is talking about, um, but I mean, King Jimmy, you know, he wanted a translation and he made it happen. So I don't know. I don't, so they speak in generalities, of course, make broad sweeping statements to support their aberrant translation. But I don't know of a schism that took place and a Bible translation was produced as a result. So again, they just misrepresent church history. Dan Fairley also said that the King James Version had its critics and quoted some scholar, quote unquote, at the time, which he uh, does not name, demanded that the KJV be burned. Who was this unnamed scholar and, and that did not agree with the King James Version? Of course, he doesn't know. He doesn't say. And he won't say because he doesn't know. <laughs> he, just, he just makes statements, you know. Uh, again, they speak in generalities broad sweeping assumptions with no specific name of who he's talking about. Uh, Dan Fairley said, this critical spirit, it ain't pretty and it ain't helpful and it's been around forever. And when we enjoy it, we're not helping anybody. And then he laughs heavily. So it's interesting. Again, he says, um, you know, that this is a not pretty, those people who are this critical spirit, those people who are doing this uh, are not pretty. I guess I've got a critical spirit too. So um, those critical spirits, they're tough to kick. Um, again, this highly condemning language of the scholars who have critiqued the Passion Translation, they're critical. They're unhelpful and frankly, may even be hurting people spiritualized by critiquing this Passion Translation, according to Dan Farrelly. This is really highly, highly 
uh, inflammatory. Um, and so they're, they're all big on unity and stuff, but this is not unifying language. This is, this is these people, those guys who in seminaries, who are teachers in seminaries, who critique this passion translation are, they have a critical spirit and they're hurting the body of Christ. It's really, really bad. Um, so Mike Winger, I don't know if you see this video, but wow, the guys you hired, they have extremely critical spirits. I don't know what they're thinking. I mean, this is really, really bad. So anyways, moving on. Bill Johnson says that people who are new believers don't understand most of these other translations. First of all, that's not accurate. Translations are understandable in modern English. <laughs> and second, that argument could lead to the belief or practice that we should uh, change translations because people don't understand the theological language instead of teaching and training people that those theological ideas and what those words mean. The Passion Translation has obliterated the theology for the sake of dumbing down the verbiage instead of leaving the verbiage as it is, because those are the words and phrases that the original authors intended. So according to his theory, uh, we should dumb down biblical translations because new believers don't understand them. And, and this is a dangerous proposition as well. So we should dumb down the language to everybody's everyday level. Um, that's just terribly problematic. Then Johnson talks about a Bible translation that was marketed as a, quote, third grade reading level Bible. Um, I'm not sure which one he's talking about, but okay. It was marketed, a Bible translation was marketed as a third grade reading level. Uh, the Bible can't be read on a third grade reading level. I mean, you can read it, but, you know, can a third grader understand uh, some of the deep parts of Ephesians and Philippians and stuff like this? They, anyways. His son then completely understood, he said, Galatians 2.20. So by Johnson's logic, we should dumb every single biblical passage and translation down to the lowest common denominator. So according to Johnson's logic, uh, the person who's reading the Bible should have a translation that comes down to their level, not bring them up to its level, right? We should be bringing people up to the level of the Bible Either the New Testament or Old Testament writers wrote something that they intended to communicate from God, inspired by God, or it ought to be communicated the same way with the same meaning as it was in the original languages, or we're messing with the message of the authors, and that is not okay. So their whole, their whole argument here on the Passion Translation is really, really problematic. Dan Fairley then seems to express the belief that beauty and artistry should be part of Bible translations and that we should allow artistry and beauty in a Bible translation instead of the focus on translating the author's original intention. So we should be able to be artistic and sort of make, make leaps a little bit and, and be creative in our translating, and that is not okay either. Dan Fairley goes on, a non-expert, a, a non-linguist, uh, and uh, in the field of translation work, he goes on to describe and diminish the power and the authenticity of the word of God that we have in the original languages, uh, that we only have copies of copies of copies of the autograph. So he, he, he gives the impression that we don't have the originals, so we don't really have the, the, the true stuff anyways in the original manuscripts or in the original autographs. 
this is highly, highly damaging to the word of God and, and diminishes the idea or, or diminishes in people's thinking the idea that we don't have the original autographs um, and, and, and that it, it's not really authoritative because we don't have those autographs. What this does, uh, what Dan Fairley does in the end is, is to put into question what we have in the texts that we do have and, and, and makes them uh, lose their authority. So he says we have copies of copies of copies. So we really don't quite have what we, what, what we need to be able to, to translate those things anyways. And this puts into question uh, in the viewer what we do have and, and is that authoritative? And he sort of gives this idea that what we're doing is trying to our very best to put together the pieces of the puzzle to the, create the scriptures. Viewer, I want to tell you, if you're watching up to this point, if you watched and stuck with me, we can be sure with 100% accuracy that what we have is what was written by the original authors and that what we have in the original manuscripts, or the, they're not the original autographs, but they are copies. They're not copies of copies of copies, as he says. They're the original manuscripts as far back as we can get them that what we have are the most of any ancient text of antiquity. There are no original autographs of anything, of the Iliad, the Odyssey. We don't have any original autographs of anything. But what we do have in the texts of Scripture, you can be 100% sure that they are what the original authors wrote. What Paul tried to write in the New Testament, what Peter wrote, what, what any of the gospel writers wrote, you can be sure with 100% accuracy that what we have is what those authors wrote. We have more manuscript copies of those texts than any other ancient text of antiquity. The Bible is overwhelming. It's, it's thousands and thousands more than the next most uh, uh, copies or, or ancient texts of antiquity. What what uh, Farrelly is doing here, he's showing his ignorance here uh, at this point of, of what we have in the ancient texts. The only effect that such a statement can have is for you to throw you into question of what we do have. Is this the real Bible? Do, is this really what Peter and Paul and, and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John wrote? Is this really? It really diminishes, Farrelly really diminishes the biblical uh, uh, texts here. And uh, he should stick with what he knows. He should stick with his fake supernatural school of ministry and not comment on some things that he has no idea about. This statement at this point in this video shows his ignorance of the biblical translation work and the ancient manuscripts that we do have. He should stick to what he knows. He doesn't have any idea. He's, he's really misleading people. This is a very uh, bad misleading. Um, you could even uh, come to the conclusion that Dan Fairley thinks that the scriptures, um, that the Holy Spirit is brooding over, quote unquote, is changing and morphing and, and becoming different and, and, and different to what we have in our English translations and that we should be creative and that we should give it another meaning. This is highly, highly incorrect and, and it diminishes the word of God. Either the New Testament writers wrote what God wanted them to communicate, or they didn't. And we can change it and make, make whatever we want out of it. 
but it's not. What the New Testament writers wrote, what the Old Testament writers wrote, is the Word of God, and it should be translated and communicated with the meaning with which they wrote. And it should be translated. Like if you're translating me from English to another language, you want to try to get as close to my meaning in another language as you possibly can. If someone were to be sitting next to me translating me to Spanish, they want, they're trying to translate me, not uh, be creative about it. They're trying to translate my message. And that's what biblical translation work is about and should be about. And this is, uh, this is really bad, you know. And again, they've used this whole section to defend the Passion Translation, to not answer the question whether or not it's heresy or not. They did not answer that question. So then uh, Bill Johnson says something even more inflammatory and condemning. Uh, he has a great, greater problem than that, he says, i.e. Bible translations. He, he has a greater problem than Bible translations with people who are teaching from this book that we are not in love quote unquote, he does, he goes on to describe scholars and folks who do Bible translation as people who aren't in love with Jesus and don't teach and don't do scholarly work according to love for God and love for Christ. He says, quote, they may be scholars, but they don't have the relationship to add the nuance that this thing needs. And he's talking about the Bible, end quote. This is highly condemning, and it's full of hubris. It, the hubris is outstanding. Basically, we have the love of God. We know how to love God well, as he says. But those people who critique the Passion Translation, they're not in love. Uh, they, don't, they don't have the nuance to, have, to, to be able to give uh, the relationship that this thing needs, meaning the Bible and the translation. So he's saying that everyone who critiques the Passion Translation is not in love or not teaching from love. It's hard to know where to start with this one. Um, <laughs> what do you do with that? You um, basically said that those who are scholars who question the Passion Translation or other translations that are not accurate are not in love with God and do not and don't do it out of a love for God. These guys are high on ecumenicalism and unity. This is not unifying language. This is a schismic, inflammatory, divisive language. Instead of asking the question, could these scholars be correct in their descriptions of the discrepancies in the Passion Translation to the Greek and Hebrew? They condemn them instead. Um, and this is an ad hominem attack. Uh, instead of engaging in the in the material that these guys have produced, Mike Winger, thank you again for you, and all you you scholars, thank you very much for for critiquing that uh, passion translation. They engage Bill Johnson and Farrelly engage in an ad hominem attack. They they deal with critique by going at the man. Ad hominem attack. For those of you who don't know, is an attack. Ad hominem means against the man or to the man. And they, instead of dealing with the nature of the critique and saying, well, maybe there is some point to this and actually dealing with the material that the critics put out, they uh, point to the man and say, well, those people just aren't in love with Jesus. They're just not in love with Jesus. But, but 
Brian Simmons, the creator of the Passion Translation, is in love with Jesus. So um, there you go. This is really, really awful. <laughs> um, he's, then Bill Johnson says, they may be scholars, quote, they may be scholars, but they don't have the relationship to understand the nuance that this thing needs. So again, they're ecumenical, but they um, attack people who basically disagree with them. This whole video is them attacking people who disagree with them. So Bill Johnson says, this is a living book, not just a textbook. In other words, all these scholars who approach it as in a scholarly way are not able to see the truth in the text and not able to handle it correctly as it should be according to Dan Fairley. So they, th this living textbook this living book is, is not a textbook. You don't handle it like those scholars do. you got to handle it like a living book, and meaning possibly that it could change. Um, and so this translate, new translation has changed meaning and has changed, and the scholars are clear that it's changed its meaning and stuff. So uh, Bill Johnson then says, don't tell me you love Jesus and you don't love the scriptures, end quote, as if uh, to say these scholars don't love the scriptures. <laughs> The scholars do love the scriptures. That's why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, these scholars deeply, deeply love Jesus. They deeply love the scriptures. And that's why they want it translated correctly. Because you want to hear correctly what Jesus taught, um, what, what he, through the authors of scripture, was trying to communicate. The scholars don't want Jesus' words and God's word twisted and falsified by translators who are translating it incorrectly and putting it off as if it were an accurate translation. Dan Fairley then, then toward the, the last minutes of the video, likens Bible translators and scholars to Pharisees who understood the text or understand the text but don't understand it. Um, again, he laughs heartily after making these condemning comparisons. Again, more and more divisive language, calling Bible scholars and those who critique this translation Pharisees. It's, it's wild. So if you don't agree with us, you're a Pharisee, you have a spirit of religion, a spirit, critical spirit. The condemnation is really, really thick with these guys. It is extremely, extremely condemn, condemning language, naming people who invest themselves and their lives into the text of Scripture and teaching it properly and translating it properly. Fair, they call them Pharisees. This is outrageous. It truly, truly is unbelievable how condemning they are at this end of this section here. So Dan Fairley says, we have to soberly look soberly look at the ability to master the material, but not be mastered by the material. This is again, another backhanded shot at the scholars who would spend their lives understanding the Greek in text and, and Hebrew text and original languages and seeking to translate it correctly. Uh, then Bill Johnson says basically that uh, talking like when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees saying, if you knew the scriptures, you would have recognized me. And I guess he's relating that to people who look too deeply into the text and don't recognize Jesus. Uh, for instance, the critics of the Passion Translation and the, and the scholars. So, so for him, scholars are missing Jesus in the text by focusing too much on getting the text translated correctly. And basically, uh, those critics that like Mike Winger and others have hired to critique the text of the Passion Translation 
translation to see if it's an accurate translation. They, they don't know Jesus, or, or worse yet, they're Pharisees and can't even recognize him in the text. This also further insults those critics who obviously don't know Jesus and can't recognize him in the text like the Pharisees couldn't. So Bill Johnson really uh, is good at insulting people uh, who don't agree with this passion translation and, and making himself look really wonderful and kind and gracious in the process. So their concluding kind of thought here is that you, you can disagree with people's interpretation and translation of texts, uh, biblical texts, but but love the person and, and love the heart in that person. Uh, how are we supposed to know a Brian Simmons, though, and his heart? Like, I don't know him. Uh, he's an author of a Bible translation. I don't, I don't know that, that, that he's got a great heart. I don't know his heart. I don't know him personally. So how do I, how could I know his heart? Besides that's a moot point when you're translating the Bible doing Bible. I don't know John Wycliffe's heart. I know about him because I've read about him, but I don't know his heart, but he translated the Bible and he did an accurate job. I don't know Martin Luther's heart or people on the ESV translations heart or people King Jimmy, you know, I mean, I don't know about him, but I don't know his heart. <laughs> he translated the Bible. He hired people to translate the Bible who knew the languages. That's a moot point in Bible translation. You don't need to know their heart. They're doing translation work. It's not a heart issue. It's a correctness issue and staying true to the author's intended meaning, not correcting your own or, or creating your own meaning on top of or adding to the text while translating. Translation work is not about heart work. It's about correctness work, being correct. Linguistically, you have to know the language. You have to be able to translate it. So uh, I say leave the translating to the translators. And linguistic experts, Greek and Hebrew experts, who are those who spent their lives studying this issue and studying language and are linguists. You wouldn't leave a, a, a patient for brain surgery in the hands of an engineer. You, you wouldn't want a brain surgeon uh, to design a high-rise architecture. Do you want an architect doing brain surgery? No, no then let's let the experts in the field of linguistics do translation work. Brian Simmons is not an expert in linguistics. He doesn't know Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. He pretends he does, but he doesn't. And I'm, now I'm not claiming I'm a language linguistics expert. I know how to do my Greek work when I'm preaching, but I don't, I'm not a, I couldn't translate a Bible and I would leave that to the experts. That's why they're experts. So they can do that work for us and give us accurate translations. I've really come to the conclusion that the that Brian Simmons doesn't know Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. He's not translating from the original texts in those languages because he doesn't know them. He's not an expert in any way, um, and he has no training in them. So it's it's like asking an engineer who has training in engineering to do brain surgery. No one would ever let an engineer touch a patient who needs brain surgery. It would be unthinkable. The same goes for Bible translation. At the 129, 33-minute uh, mark, Dan Fairley says in relation to sin and the sin nature or sin that entangles, quote, that is not your real you. That is not your deepest you. Not sure how to critique that, but... It is borderline Pelagianism. Like I said, the uh, Pelagianism was the, is the teaching that there is no sin nature. Um, when you sin, that is the real you. 
That is the real you. Now, for those who are in Christ, those sins are forgiven. Um, and he is making you into the likeness of Jesus Christ slowly through sanctification. But it is when you sin, it is the deep you. It is the real you. And uh, he's wrong on that. So I think it's borderline Pelagianism. So it's very, very crucial that you not fall into this trap, that you are not a sinner. You are a sinner saved by the grace of God. And he is he can and make you holy. But you weren't holy before. You're, it's not your deepest you. So uh, at the 130, 40-minute uh, mark, the reality, he says, the reality is you have been you have given your life to Christ. You are truly born again. In your heart of hearts, you have a desire to please him. It is your nature to honor him. I think you can probably figure out what is problematic with this one. Um, it's not your heart of hearts. It's not your true desire to honor him. Paul said it. He said, woe is me. Like, oh, oh, who will save me from this body of death? Um, now we can debate on Romans seven and eight and, and you know, pre-Christ post-Christ, but, um, you've given your life to Christ and he is working in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. He's doing those things. It's not your true desire to honor him. Um, Romans seven fifteen through 25. Uh, you can look at that yourself. I'm not going to go into it cause I am way over time here. I think we're into the two minute, two hour range. Um, he says, I don't understand my actions. I hate everything I am. Um, my flesh, you know, I want to do what pleases God, but I can't do it. Um, so uh, you can look at that yourself. Romans 7 is a very interesting passage. Um, then he talks about communion as a section on communion, 134-minute uh, mark. Bill Johnson says he takes communion privately. Communion is spelled out in the New Testament, and it is not a private sacrament. Whatever you believe on communion, are you Lutheran, sort of, you know, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, all these other ideas? Is it just a a remembrance? Whatever all, all your views on it, it is not a private sacrament. It is a public and corporate practice. And as described by Jesus and the rest of the New Testament authors as a corporate celebration of the death of Christ. Nowhere is communion described or prescribed as a private ceremony. He says he actually takes communion. Bill Johnson actually says he takes communion daily. Um, This is an anti-biblical practice. It's unbiblical. It is meant, communion is meant to be taken corporately, not privately. Then Bill Johnson says uh, as well in this section that he was recently started teaching as well more publicly that he believes that there is physical healing in the communion. His wife wrote a book on communion. I forget the title right off the top of my head, but there's healing in the communion. In that book, she's written um, that, that there is that healing, physical healing and communion. He also expresses that during his personal private communion time, he prays that people will receive healing that is bound up in the communion. Uh, this is as well unbiblical, and it is it is attached to their theology of healing, which says that Jesus paid for our healing on the cross. Um, by his stripes were healed. I've talked about that already in this show. And so communion for them must also hold the power of healing within it. Uh, this is, again, unbiblical, and again, not promised for us in Scripture that healing is in the communion. Um, there's nowhere that I can point to or think of in Scripture that uh, would display that healing is 
the communion uh, has healing within it and that we should take communion for our healing and that we should take communion every day or privately. So uh, Bill shows how uh, spiritual he is here again in this section um, when he says that he prays for people who oppose him in the gospel, quote unquote, oppose him in the gospel. With heartfelt affection, he really prays for those people, he said. And this is exactly what I imagined a, a false teacher would do to demonize his opponents by saying that they are opponents of the gospel. And then second, he makes himself look glowing and beautiful and spiritual by saying that that he would pray for his opponents. He obviously is preaching the true gospel, but those who oppose him are opponents of that true gospel. So if you've ever criticized Bill Johnson, you're an opponent of the gospel. Um, This language is of control, manipulation, and only cult leaders engage in this type of deceit. Uh, This is, uh, sorry, Jim Jones type of manipulation. Those people who oppose me, they're opponents of the gospel, and I pray for them. See, look how spiritual I am. I pray for them that they would um, receive the healing that's part of the atonement. And I pray for them that they would stop opposing the gospel. Uh, Then Dan Fairley says um, that he wonders if the cross isn't the center, quote unquote, cross isn't the center, because we have so much of the kingdom of God before and so much of the kingdom of God after. Not sure what he's really getting at there. Uh, I don't know. The cross is the central part of of life and worship for the Christian. It is the central part. And if anybody focuses, any, if, if there's any statement of faith that ignores or, or downplays the cross, it is to be avoided. The cross is the central part of Christian life and worship. They basically downplay the cross in this whole section. I would posit that any ministry that omits or diminishes the cross is terrifying and to be strictly avoided. So uh, again, this video probably is one of those, I don't do these all the time, but I do them occasionally because uh, it's necessary. These, this ministry should be marked and avoided. Stay away. So Paul encourages us in Romans 16 verse 17, anyone who opposes sound doctrine to mark and avoid them. And so uh, there's more ways than one that this, in this PR episode of Rediscovering Bethel, um, that they have opposed sound doctrine and uh, obfuscated and, and, and ad hominem attacks and created straw man arguments um, to make them look better. And again, I would encourage you to look into it yourself, but um, this is me marking and avoiding them. I will do more episodes on this Rediscover Bethel series and try to give you all lots of information on what those episodes were about. So this was a long one. Uh, I don't know. I might even split it up into two episodes, but thanks for sticking with. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Churchpreneur's Podcast. You can find out more about my ministry at richardpmore.net. If you'd like to reach out, you can email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. If you Twitter or anything like that, you're welcome to follow me on Twitter at richardpmore23. Uh, if you want to have any questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, or uh, ideas for any podcast, please reach out on one of those platforms. God bless you. Until next time, take care. Take care.